So Jesus, right now, uh, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for what you desire to do. Uh, we thank you for what you have done already, and that we get to be welcomed or invited into, to be a part of, to be partakers of. So God, right now, uh, just meet us here in a unique and a special way. Open our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, our imaginations to all that you have begun and all that you are currently wanting to do and all that you will one day do that we will be swept up into. So again, we entrust this time in your hands and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we join with millions upon millions of followers of Jesus around the world. If you guys don't have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and raise your hand. We have some ushers. I would love to get you a Bible. We're going to be reading in the Gospel of John. In fact, if you'd like, well, I'll tell you right now, go ahead and open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. It's the story that we're going to read. Um, but back on track with the idea of like Easter, this is one of the most, in fact, if not the most significant day of the entire year on the calendar for Everyone who follows Jesus. Um, I oftentimes like to say that there's a lot that Christians universally have disagreements over in terms of style and how church should be done and different flavors and varieties and musics and so on and so forth. At the end of the day, there are there's so much that Christians are united around. The fact that we are defined by this one event, every single Christian, every single person on the planet that follows Jesus, I don't care if they're alive today or they've been alive over the past 2,000 years, every single one of them unilaterally agree on this being the most significant, the most important day of the entire year. All of them are in alignment to this. In fact, Paul the Apostle would actually go on to say that if the resurrection did not happen, then our faith is actually in vain. In other words, this very event that we celebrate today is the most significant event that opens up and unfolds for us the entirety of what we call the life in following Jesus. In fact, so much so, the idea of this event um, is really centered around at least four different realities. I'll kind of throw a little uh, slide up there to, for you guys to think about. These four things are significant that kind of point to the reality that the idea of the resurrection is something that can actually be be believed. Um, it's important for you to know that we, as followers of Jesus, we are not just simply following a blind faith. That's really significant because there's a lot of pushback that can be articulating that Christians just simply follow a blind leap in faith or in the darkness or we just believe fairy tales and myths. This is completely false. It's not true. There's at least four things that are very significant to the idea of as to how we build our faith around this. Number one, the empty tomb. Something happened on those first few days that literally we know based upon the historical record that that tomb was empty. Now you can go into all sorts of ex explanations as to how it became empty, but we know the fact that the tomb was empty. Number two, the idea of this post-crucifixion appearances of Jesus. We're told based upon the New Testament accounts, there was at least 500 different people on one occasion, uh, aside from all the other people that were identified as following or as identifying or seeing Jesus after he had been crucified. So again, number one, you have this empty tomb. Number two, you have these massive amounts, hundreds of people actually seeing and interacting and encountering the risen Jesus. Number three, the idea of just transformed lives. You cannot deny the fact that Whatever happened, first century, has to do with an empty tomb, has to do with people actually claiming to have seen Jesus, and then thirdly, their lives were radically transformed. Uh, so much so that people were willing to actually die. They were actually willing to face 
being thrown to the lions or face even themselves being crucified as enemies of the state because they would refuse to deny the fact that they saw Jesus or refuse the fact that they were actually transformed by Jesus. So how do you explain that? These are things that I think are significant enough to look at and say, whatever your idea is that happened, something so significant happened that has to do with an empty tomb, that has to do with post-crucifixion appearances, that has to do with people actually encountering and being transformed by the risen Jesus. And then fourthly, and there's others, but fourthly, and I'll just kind of end before we jump into the teaching here this morning. This is not the teaching, by the way. It's just kind of precursor. It's free. You guys are welcome. So the fourth thing to think about is just the idea of Jesus' impact upon the world. This is so significant. The world has never been the same since Jesus came. Again, we live in a world today, in a culture today, in California today, that is, for the most part, not very warm and welcoming and loving and buttery when it comes to thinking about the, the aspect of Christianity. In fact, it's safe to say that Christi- Christians, for the most part, are not really openly welcomed. Or, uh, and part of this has to do with the fact that Christians have not always been great witnesses or testimonies of the resurrected Jesus, and they've kind of dabbled over a little bit more into the idea of empire building as opposed to kingdom building. And the distinction is pretty significant. One has to do with power and acclamation of power and protection of that power and crushing those that would threaten that power. And as a result of that, Christians have been guilty of creating very broken systems of violence and brokenness. We know this. This is not something that we should have to have to look away and deny. It's happened, but nonetheless, it is a distortion of the very Jesus himself, what Jesus came to accomplish. But that being said, what Christians have brought about, faithful ones that have been devoted to what Jesus has done, has literally changed the world as we know it. I'll give you a couple examples of this. For uh, Hospitals were actually first created I don't know if you knew this or not, by Christians, people that were faithfully following Jesus. So, for example, Pennsylvania Hospital in 1751 was founded by a Quaker Christian. New York Presbyterian Hospital in 1771 by Episcopalian Christians, Samuel Barton. Massachusetts General Hospital in 1811 by Reverend John uh, Barlett. All of these were motivated by their conviction and commitment to Jesus to say, let's create systems that can help people that are hurting. Uh, You think about educational systems. Some of the most significant Ivy League educational systems in America, believe it or not, were actually founded, first and foremost, as Christian organizations and institutions to train people how to read, how to become literate, how to become uh, educated and to study and to think clearly, to think critically, all of these were framed by Christians, devoted to the idea of who Jesus is, what Jesus has come to bring forth into this world. So hospitals uh, that were movements that aimed at protecting life from the very womb to the grave. We see charities being brought forth, adoption agencies, crisis pregnancy centers. All of these things are direct outflows of people that have been walking in fidelity to Jesus. They have been changed. Christianity has had a massive impact. All of this comes from this event that we celebrate today. In fact, a historian, a guy by the name of Tom Holland, I don't think he's a Christian, he said this, the most disruptive, most influential, and most enduring revolution in history is Christianity. Think about revolutions. Revolutions typically have a shelf life. A couple hundred years, 
at best, most revolutions at some point come to an abrupt end by way of another revolution that pushes them back, counter-revolutionaries. Christianity has and was a revolution that literally conquered Rome, not by bloodshed, not by violence, but by the good news of the gospel going forth. So there's a lot to look at with regard to this event we call the resurrection and celebrate because it has literally changed the world as we know it. With that being said, I'm going to read now John chapter 20, verse 1 to 2, and then jump down to verse 11 through 16. I just want you to listen along as we read this, and then I'm going to make some statements, and I'm done. starts like this. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Verse 11 says, Then Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she, stood, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had been laid, one, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where that they have taken him or laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus then said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir... If you have carried him away, please tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus then said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And this is the word of the Lord. This is just one story that articulates the resurrection of Jesus. There's multiple stories, encounters of people with Jesus. This just happens to be the one that we've been reading. We've been going through a series on Sunday mornings to the Gospel of John. And so we're probably around John chapter 6 right now, so pretty far from this. But sometimes it's fun to kind of go into the future and see what's happening there and kind of move back. So we time travel. You're welcome. Um, what I want to jump in to think about here today with regard to the larger aspect of the picture of the resurrection there's at least three things I want for us to think about that the resurrection ultimately accomplished. It was intended as an act on God's behalf to bring hope into this world, a world that's filled with despair and brokenness and a lot of bad news. And so there's at least three things I want for us to look at and think about today that this resurrection brings forth into this world. Number one, we're going to take a look at it brings about an end to evil and ultimately death. That was the big aim of what Jesus came to do. This is so significant of a promise or of a claim. I just want you to pause and think about this. Imagine a politician in today's world standing up saying, hey, I'm running on a campaign slogan that basically we're going to completely end all criminal activity, all evil, all wickedness, and all death. It's like, that's a pretty big claim. Do you have the goods to prove that? Do you have the means? Do you have the money? Do you have the resources? Can you actually accomplish that? That's a big, massive claim. But this is, nonetheless, the claim that Jesus had made. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it starts with this, very beginning of the Bible. This is after God created all things. Adam and Eve had fallen. They had basically turned away from God. They unleashed pain, brokenness, death in this world as a result of their turning away from God, uh, rather than looking to God as the means and the source of wisdom uh, in their identity. They turned away from God. They became what we would call autonomous or a law unto themselves. They began to make and carve out their own path forward. And as a result, it brought forth death and brokenness in this world. 
And then God begins to make a promise to them. He says, because you have unleashed chaos in this world, and because I love this world, and because I love you, I'm going to step into this world. I'm going to do something about the death, sin, and brokenness and rebellion that's been unleashed. And the way that this is going to happen is going to be through uh, the birth of a child. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says this, says, he will come, referring to whoever this person is, he will come and crush the head of the serpent, and then the serpent will bruise his heel. Most scholars would all identify that this is actually a reference to Jesus himself. We would call him the snake crusher. He comes to crush the serpent's head. Again, if you're familiar with the story, you remember the serpent was the one that deceived Adam and Eve into eating the fruit and then ultimately bringing about death unleashed upon the planet. And Jesus says, I've, this is who I am. I've come to crush the head of the serpent. First John chapter 3, verse 8 says, the reason, whenever you hear statements like this, it's always kind of good to just perk up. Like, what, what is the reason that God is about to give us? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, the works of the devil. Again, we live in a world today that's pretty easy to identify that there is evil pretty permanent everywhere we look. It doesn't take that much smarts to just realize that. We all know that. We all feel that. We have all been participants of that. We've all been contributors of that. We've all been victims of evil that's been in this world. All of us, we have been affected by it and the death that it ultimately brings about. And the important thing to think about is that death has always ruled and reigned. In fact, I was thinking about this the other day, the idea, the significance, the ubiquity of death is all around us. I was thinking about different characters of death. we got a little slide I'm going to show you. So the personifications of death. So in other words, if you were to actually take death, this action or activity, and then personify it, in other words, kind of put it into a human body or a human embodiment, what would that look like? Did you know that throughout all ages, all cultures have their own versions of personifications of death, all of them. So, for example, the one on your far left, I believe, is that right, uh, is kind of an ancient Greek one that uh, is an identification of Thanatos, I think his name. Um, and then we think of like the Grim Reaper, this one that's all these skeletons. This is around 1500, 1600s. It was a, a sketcher, a writer uh, that had actually articulated this. And it was the idea of the carrying on this personification of death. Death is all around us. I was also even thinking about this, how this kind of plays out in our culture today. Sigmund Freud, the famous psychologist, postulated that humans uh, instinctive. What he would actually describe as the death drive compels humans to engage in risky or self-destructive behavior. So from a psychological analysis, he would look at that and say, when human beings engage in risky, uh, no fear, uh, self-destructive behavior, this is what he would describe as the death drive. There's something driving actions, activities, the energy behind inflicting pain and brokenness upon another human being. This death drive is alive all around us. I was also thinking in terms of even our modern tech culture. Uh, video games are oftentimes consistent, regular purveyors of death. This idea, think about various video games or even hero movies and whatnot. Think about in our own culture ways in which death is just ubiquitous. You cannot get away from it or images of death. So it's easy to sometimes think about death if in a personified sense as being this powerful enemy that always gets the last upper hand of victory, right? Powerful, mighty, almost even almighty. Nobody could ever push back or question or challenge or confront death. But this is the very claim that Jesus does. He confronts death. He lets death do to him what it does to every one of us. 
He goes into the very heart of death and lets death crush him. That was Good Friday. But the resurrection tells us an entirely different story above and beyond that transcends death. Jesus arises from the dead, which basically says uh, that uh, the, the Greek or the ancient historic Orthodox Church actually has a word to describe the time frame from when Jesus died to the time that he rose again. It's called the harrowing of death. They, they envision Jesus going into the very belly of death itself, taking it by its throat and disemboweling it, killing it, destroying it, letting death swallow him to go into the very center of it, and then like a really bad poison to destroy death from within, and then being regurgitated out of the grave, victorious, saying, I am the one that has conquered death, and all who follow me, all who devote themselves to me, I will bring into this new pathway of life, what we would call resurrection. So when you think about this, the writer of Hebrews would describe it this way. Jesus partook of the same things, this is a reference to suffering death, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is, the devil. So there's an evil force in the world today at work. We would go back to Genesis chapter 3 and identify him as the serpent, that Jesus comes into this world to crush the serpent and thereby restore life to human beings that have been impacted and affected and marred and ruined by death itself. Death has lost its grip on Jesus. And Paul would later say, death has lost its grip on you and I, if you are in Jesus. Therefore, for those that follow Jesus, death is not the end. It is a doorway. It is a womb. It is a pathway into this new life that Jesus has created. Why do we know this? Because Jesus is the prototype. He's the firstborn. He's the beginning of a brand new way of doing life that involves allowing death to do to him what it does to us to come out the other end. Therefore, as we follow Jesus, we follow Jesus all the way through death into life again. So number one, to bring an end to evil. Number two, we see him to bring us to life itself. In other words, you and I as individuals, God cares about you and I as individuals, as a humanity. God cares about us. In fact, Jesus would say this in John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and may have it in abundance. And you go on to say, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus' whole point is that part of my journey, my mission was to come into this world and to allow death to do to me what it does to everyone. That I will lay my life down for the sheep, and as a result of that, I will come out the other end. And this is Jesus' way of saying that I'm going to undo the works of the thief which is his way of describing or identifying the devil himself that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Pause and think about it. Take a quick assessment of your life. What are those areas in your life that you feel as if things have been stolen from you that have been affected or infected by death or have been brought to some varying degree of destruction? It's those areas that Jesus says, I have come to bring a reordering and a restoring to those things. Ultimately, the way that this idea would be brought about in New Testament language is what we would use the word salvation. That this is Jesus' way of saying, I am come to bring life to those that follow me. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57, Paul would say this, But thanks be to God who has given us the victory through Jesus Christ. The big idea is that the idea of resurrection is all about victory. Jesus is the victor. Jesus has overcome 
because Jesus has overcome, because he himself has brought the victory, we also that are in Jesus have the victory. The key idea here is being in Jesus, being connected to Jesus, having our lives uh, devoted to Jesus as a result of that. We, too, take upon the victory that Jesus. It's not our victory. We didn't earn it. We didn't fight for it. Jesus has given it to us because he himself has come out on top over all in the end. And therefore, as followers of Jesus, uh, you've heard me say this before, like we fight from victory, not for victory. Like the battles that we face in this life, we're not out trying to exert energy to fight for a victory. We have already been given a victory. The battle has already been won. Jesus has basically done everything already, set the thing going. Uh, Then that raises a big question that should be on everyone's mind. If this is true, then why is the world still in such a big, dire mess? It's a fair question. Because I've heard, oftentimes said, maybe you have as well, that when D-Day happened, for example, in World War II, the battle was decisively over. It was done. D-Day literally ended World War II. But there were still skirmishes going on. There were still battles. There were still islands in the South Pacific that for years later were still fighting these battles. They just didn't know that the battle was actually over. They didn't have cell phones. They weren't checking their Twitter account. Like, what's going on with the battle? Uh, They were still engaged in this warfare. They just didn't really realize. And this is exactly, I think it's a great analogy to think about how and what Jesus brought about. The victory has been won. We are now living in this place where one day Jesus will come back and completely clean up the mess that still exists upon this planet. But now we fight from victory, not for victory. Lastly, Jesus promises to bring about this brand new world. And this is beautiful to consider because, again, we live in a world right now that all we see, for the most part, is brokenness and death and ruin and shadows with punctuated moments of beauty and super blooms and goodness and acts of kindness and generosity uh, and cute cat videos that allow us to just kind of pause and take a break from the constant despair that's just seething in our world today. And all of these are like little reminders, little samplings, little, little tastes, foretastes of what Jesus says will one day will come. Jesus' whole aim was to create all things new. Not all new things. Very important to know, to create all things new, to make all things new. What that means is that Jesus takes things that were once part of the original creation, that have been marred or broken and ruined, and it's a massive restoration project that Jesus brings about. This is what he's up to in this world. Some of you guys can testify to this. You have been that restoration project. You've been somebody that has been very familiar with deep, deep brokenness and ruin in your life based upon things that have either been done to you or things that you have done to yourself or done to others by your own actions or things of actions of other people against you. But either way, you have tasted and felt and experienced deep brokenness. Yet at the same time, you've also, through Jesus' power, experienced incredible redemption and restoration and renewal. This is what Jesus will one day do for the entire cosmos, the entire world in which we live in. So, for example, Romans chapter 8, and I'm done. 
Paul, the apostle, would write this. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will one day be revealed to us. So he's talking to the us, those that are in Jesus, those that have followed Jesus. He's saying, look, guys, look up, be cheerful, be hopeful, or at least be hopeful. Uh, Sometimes cheer is hard to grasp, but at least have hope even in the midst of despair and brokenness or pain. But he would go on to say that there is something that's coming. Verse 19, he says, for the creation... So he kind of shifts gears from the us as human beings to the creation is this this inanimate creation around us, this world in which we live in. He says, even the world has been subjected to corruption and brokenness. Things die in this world. Things get corrupted in this world. Things don't work right in this world. Things produce death in this world. And then he goes on to say, for the creation itself is waiting with eager and longing, revealing, uh, revealing the, of the sons of God. So in other words, creation itself is like on its tippy toes, watching human beings undergo this transformational move of the Holy Spirit in the lives of individual people. And he says creation itself is kind of like, like standing with eager anticipation for its time to undergo radical metamorphosis, radical transformation. In verse 21, it says, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So again, he keeps contrasting or comparing, I should say, that one day creation itself, all things that we live in this world, will one day undergo a radical transformation, just like, just like sons and daughters of God have. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves. Verse 24, says, For in this hope we were saved. And I'm done. But the key thing I want for us to just pause and consider and reflect upon is this idea of hope. Resurrection is always about bringing hope, bringing forth hope in our hearts. I don't know where you're at today. What type of despair or pain or loss or things that have been stolen, or destroyed, or ruined, or subject to death that you have experienced in this life. The resurrection creates an entirely different platform whereby, or a different grid, or a different lens by which we can look at the life around us through this lens that because Jesus rose again from the dead 2,000 years ago, he invites us also to participate and partake in that same type of resurrection. That therefore, we have hope. So I don't know about you, but where does death rule and reign throughout your life now? What are those relationships that have been soiled and stained and marred by death? What are those areas where you've had hopes and dreams and anticipations that have been just left you with this deep sense of disappointment? Death. Things that you had thought were going to be happening in your life, but didn't go that way. Plans you had made for yourself to go a particular path, and they completely went the exact opposite direction. Rather than gain and fortune, you experienced loss and embarrassment. The hope of the resurrection casts a holy vision over all of us valley dwellers to look at life in an entirely different way through a lens of hope. Not optimism, not despair, but hope. Things that could be because Jesus is alive. Therefore, those that are in Jesus also share in his life. Let's all stand. 
And I want to just finish by lifting up our voice loudly, boldly, make these declarations to God that he's alive and he's good and he's for us.